0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Feed the Ball Podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm talking with architect Mike DeVries. Mike DeVries is one of the most capable and creative designers working not just in the minimalist vernacular, but in all of golf course architecture. He grew up playing Crystal Downs, where he developed a love for heavily and artistically contoured greens and the artistic stylings of Alistair McKenzie and Perry Maxwell, creators of the upstate Michigan masterpiece. He later went to work for Tom Doak on several of Doak's earliest projects, and also for Tom Fazio before opening his own business in 1996. DeVries comes from the Pete Dye School of Construction, dedicating himself fully to his projects, designing and building his courses himself along with associate Joe Hancock, and often moving to live on or near sites when necessary. Yet despite high acclaim and awards for designs like Kingsley Club in Graywalls, in Michigan, and Cape Wickham in Tasmania, now rated as one of the top 100 courses on the planet, DeVries' name has often been an add-on to conversations of today's great architects, and he's too rarely been afforded the reverence reserved for some of his minimalist colleagues. No one capable of producing courses like a Kingsley Club, or a Gray Walls, or a Cape Wickham should ever be termed underrated, or worse, unknown. In this nice long talk, we do our best to put that distinction to rest, get the backstory to several of Mike's most high-profile courses, and hear to whom he would like to pass the mantle of most underrated architect. So let's hit the road, get started, and cue up my conversation with Mike DeVries. So I was just reading in a book called Golf Architecture, A Worldwide Perspective. That's those uh, compendiums that Paul Daly compiled. And you yeah. wrote an essay for them about greens, and you were comparing why, kind of wild, exuberant greens versus, you know, greens that could be too radical or gimmicky, you write. And you talk about how to contour a large green in a very interesting way. You know, thinking about large and, and robustly contoured greens, what do you think of Mike Strand's?
1: Well, I never had a chance to meet him, uh, and I'm I'm not super familiar with all his work. Like, I've never been to Tobacco Road, unfortunately. Um, that's one of the errors on my part. But I have seen like True Blue and mm-hmm. Caledonia, you know, down in the Myrtle area and stuff like that. Um, you know, like his stuff. Uh, recognize, you know, he was a he was an artist and created a lot of you know, very very cool stuff. So you know, those golf courses are. On relatively compact pieces of ground flat ground and he brought a lot of interest and stuff into that uh but i haven't like i said i haven't seen tobacco road uh here you know it's a fairly polarizing type of golf course where people appreciate it or they say well it's it's you know it's too extreme too many blind shots things like that so i can't really comment directly on that uh in particular but i think there's a i think there's a place for that I think the things that, you know, make it interesting or something that uh I would like to see, you know, more of is that he was, you know, he's pushing the envelope and trying something. And some people really like it and some people don't. That's kind of exciting. Just like Pete Dye's work tends to really attract people or they go, "Oh, you know, I hate that, you know, it's too hard or this or that." And I think what's interesting about that is that Pete was always trying something new. I mean, here he is. Uh, I know he's, you know, having some um, health issues, you know, older age type issues and things like that recently. But, you know, even to all the most recent stuff he's been doing, he sort of pushes the envelope a bit here and there. He's trying something new, you know, when he was, you know, in his 80s and stuff. You know, he was still... Wanting to make people think and to try different stuff, which I think is, which is cool and makes it interesting to go check it out. You might not like it, but I think it's still, I think there's a, I think there's a neat place for that in golf.
0: Yeah. I, I I see what you're saying about a place like Tobacco Road. It is polarizing, but would you say in general, those types of greens, would that be what a gimmicky or a green too far would be or a place like True Blue, like you said, or that style of contouring? What would gimmicky be to you?
1: Well, Gimmicky's sort of putting in things just for the aspect of, you know, including that in in sort of your list, you know. Okay, we we click off the box, we got a blind shot, we have, uh, you know, severe three-tiered green, you know, types of things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a place for all of that stuff, and it depends on the context of what it's placed in. Big, wild, bold greens. Uh, But if you have options... And you have variety and things that you can do to to play off of that to avoid to play conservatively or to play more aggressively, and I guess the thing is that you play conservatively, you sort of kind of know where you're going to go, but and what you're what you're going to be left with, and you're you're okay with that. Versus, you know, if you're an attacker or the gun, you know, like better better players, when something is sort of marginally on the edge, I think better players be negative about that. Mm-hmm just from the standpoint of they're aggressive and they're really good shot makers and they go after something and they, and their margin of error is small, but the margin of error for like a difficult shot or something that's extreme tends to polarize them in sort of the negativity. Well, you know, I, I hit a decent shot and I got totally screwed. So, um, well, you know, you had a wedge in your hand and you attacked the, the location of the pin aggressively and you missed in the wrong spot. So is that just that you didn't, you know, play the shot well enough or did you try and do something that you weren't capable of or is that just your style of play? So Um yeah, Bill Mickelson, it's, it's you know, like he's a... always he's always attacking stuff. But he he never he never doesn't back down and he doesn't go, Oh, that was totally unfair. He goes, you know, I went for it. That's how I play.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost a temperamental difference between players. If there are some players, especially if you like, if you've traveled overseas and played links golf, you know, you you know, you're not going to try to land the ball on every green. You're going to try to roll it up or land it short. And some golf courses, like a Mike Strands golf course, if you go pin hunting and and some of those pin placements, you're, you know, your ball's going to end up off the green. You've got to play away from the flag and let it go. So yeah. it's a temperamental difference yeah. between players and what their experience is with that style of golf. But over the last 20, 30 years, there's been really, maybe even beyond that, but there's really generally in the, the mass market of golf course design, a general flattening of greens. We've lost so much character. If you go back and look at the golden age greens and the donald ross drawings and mckenzie uh greens there was so much character in the greens 30 yards and in that's where the you know that was more than half the game right there that's where the fun started and over the last few decades that's been erased if you eliminate the courses you know like the Bandon dunes and the cabots and you know kingsley club your your places that are you know have a lot of contour or based on sand sites aside from that there's just been sort of a dumbing down of, of greens do you do you agree with that assessment and you know is there a chance that that golf can reclaim that those interesting internal contours that greens used to have?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think well I think the main reason that that's happening uh the flattening of greens and you know taking out that contour and those types of things is that's speed of greens. So there's a there's a greater capacity just mechanically to cut stuff shorter and finer and when you do that it's gonna be faster, it's gonna be more consistent, it's gonna be less grain, gonna have all these types of things. So they can do that agronomically, they can they can do that with materials and chemicals and stuff like that. So that makes it really difficult to have something severely pitched. And anything that's coming out new or when you watch the P G A Tour, they limit what it's gonna be even though when you listen to Johnny Miller and all the guys on the you know, oh, they're rolling at fourteen today and <laughs> You know? <laughs> and it's like 14 is unplayable basically for yeah. the average guy. you know whether you know it has to be a, just a tabletop for that uh, because once you start getting any pitch in there, if it's 14, if it's truly 14, the ball doesn't stop, it just keeps going and then it goes off the green. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the key to it and the way that I see it is that uh, the way that I approach it is that you have to build in counter slopes, And other sorts of things that are that are lesser speed, and you gotta hopefully build greens that roll firm and true, and not necessarily aren't dependent on speed being the only thing to challenge the golfer. So you can, if you have a green that rolls at nine or ten, which would have been you know fast in certain days, but um, if you have that, but you have some pitch to the green. Where if you get above the hole, you could still putt the ball, but it's going to be really difficult and it's going to be quick. Uh, but if you had place the ball correctly underneath the hole, you have a chance to really attack it, and not just based on speed. And the ball's still moving, and you still have to, you still have to gauge how much pitch and slope and how much it's going to turn and things like that. To me, that's fun. Uh, I think that I think that's more interesting, and it's hard to go in when, you know, when there's this demand for speed. Well, you know, down there, they're, they're rolling at 12 and a half every day. We got to, you know, we got to bump up our speed. That's a, that's the hard thing to not sort of fall victim to, you know, as a, as a club or a membership or a green chairman or the superintendent or whatever. But how, how can we make it fun and how can we make it more enjoyable and stuff? And when the greens are slightly slower and they're firm and roll through, then you can start using those pitched areas for pin locations. And then... It takes, you know, a real crafty player, to get it close and and to get in the right position to where they can make a birdie putt or a par putt or whatever their their putt is, versus their opponent. And that, to me, that makes it uh, that makes it more interesting. Instead of just hitting it on the green, it's flat and there's no, there's you know, it's oh, it's 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 a half a ball out on the left. You know, yeah. everything's it's a the, half a ball or a ball it's out. The worst thing to hear from like, a caddy. With, right. <laughs> it's like Uh, How do you know that you know it's just because it's just dead flat you know and they and then they just know that there's a general pitch or tilt to it so I think if I think you know I grew up at Crystal Downs working at Crystal Downs and those are some of the most severe greens in the world but they're still playable um, as long as they don't get you know the speed doesn't get out of control so
0: is that a trend that could be reversed because I, you know, I live in I live in a big city, and all the private clubs here, it, it's a race for speed. It's a, it's a vanity thing for the membership. Is it? I mean, how do you reverse that trend? It, it doesn't seem like one club who bucks the trend, grows their greens longer, has them recontour to really interesting contours. It doesn't seem like you know, having a couple of those clubs is going to be enough to to turn the Titanic around. Is, is is it too far? Are we too far gone, or is there hope?
1: Well. I'm hopeful that there's still hope. Yeah, <laughs> Cause I I'm that, hopeful, I think but that, I don't know if think it's true. That, yeah, I'm hopeful, <laughs> very hopeful, um, but that's that's difficult. And the the clubs that have to make that happen have to be, you know, the ones that are out there that are that are exposed. So the greatest example of that's Augusta National. Their greens are got a lot of pitch. They're super fast. You know, particularly when you watch the Masters. So you know, everybody loves that, so why why do we have to build our greens super, super slow, or super, excuse me, super fast, but with no pitch on them, you know, to achieve that? Because there, you know, who doesn't love those long putts where the thing breaks or the ball comes in, the approach shot comes in, and it just seems to, like, shh, curl down, and yeah. all of a sudden then it's really close to the hole. So, you know, those things are fun. Everybody loves watching that. I guess the problem billion is when a million examples there.
0: Yeah, when when a 16 handicap player is like on a on a course like that, then they then they're cursing the superintendent, you know, or the, the conditions yeah. of the course when their ball rolls off the green because they don't have the, the skill that the, you know, the pros do at Augusta.
1: Right, right. And everybody focuses
0: guess, at on the speed, the pure speed of Augusta rather than yeah. the contour. They're just like, "Oh, look how fast those greens are." You know, they they're not yeah. analyzing the way the, the pins are set up to take advantage of slopes to work the ball in off, off contour.
1: Right, right. So I, 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 I'm hopeful that it isn't totally irreversible, but more and more you see clubs you know, adjusting their old greens and dropping the pitch on them. You know, so we, can't, we can't pin this green anymore. It's out of control, da 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 um, And that's, that's a difficult question. And, and the argument there with, you know, they don't have to be this fast. We can do this, this, and this. That has to come internally, you know, from those clubs. And most of them aren't going to do that. Oh, well, you know, they did it over there and stuff. To me, that's a, you know, I'm trying to work within those parameters of what we have. And if you grow the grass just a little bit longer, that the grass is healthier. It has a better disease resistance and it has a better growing habit. It's doing more photosynthesis. So you, you can develop healthier turf and healthier roots, which makes it, uh, more durable when you get into a drought period or you know some environmental issue that is is coming up and you know why wouldn't we do that why wouldn't in the north you know when the fall comes around you know we're sort of hardening off the greens and stuff they're they're letting them grow a little more and they get them get them ready for winter etc and you know that's that's beneficial that's beneficial in the spring and there's a rest period you know when it's under a blanket of snow and things like that so uh, those things can be I think really quite positive and you just have to get confirmation you, know, you have to you have to work with your membership to to make those things happen
0: it uh, seems like you've had some success conveying that message and having the membership or even new new owners building new courses listen to you
1: uh yeah i've had i've had fantastic owners and and you know they've appreciated that and we've you know we've talked a lot about how that is and you know what the different shot options were around greens and and why and and how to maintain that and one of the things too is everyone goes well these greens were never meant to be this fast they were never this fast et cetera and i look at it and go okay a hundred years ago. The greens were a lot longer. They didn't have the mechanical ability to do that. But there was a lot more grain also because, you know, when longer blades of grass, they lay over, particularly if they're rolling and doing different things. So 100 years ago, 80 years ago, greens that were downhill, down grain, were super ultra fast. You know, they were 14 or 15 on the centimeter probably at times. You know, like couldn't stop the ball. And then when you went uphill, up grain, it was a full shoulder turn and mm-hmm. whacking the putter and you know trying to get the ball move. So th- there was more variability. And now we, with the capabilities of the mechanical uh, devices that we have, and we're able to, you know, reduce grain or eliminate it in some cases, and then provide a more consistent speed and surface, uphill, downhill, etc. So why do we have to? do that at the upper range. Why not, you know, have it moderately fast, uh, but firm. And, um, to me that, that makes it more fun. So, but it's a struggle. It's hard. Uh, everybody, oh, they're fast down there, you know, we gotta, yeah, got to keep up with the Joneses down the street, so.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the and the thing that everybody sees on television, the PGA Tour, is when they go into golf courses, they want to set them up and have contour taken out because they love those 13 stint meter readings. The, the I think the players like those too, so they're, you know, they're just flattening out greens or putting pins in, like, flat areas, you know, so, so the public is only seeing speed and not, the ball moving around on the greens and off the greens as much as they probably we'd like them to at least
1: yeah and and they're seeing they're seeing a golf course that's been prepped for 51 weeks right play for this one week for a specific purpose and that's not normal everyday golf either you know that's that's the hard thing for you know people think well you know every week on the tour it's all yeah well that's that golf course is prepping the other time the, the rest of the year just so that they can play that one tournament. So there's a big difference there. And there's a big difference, say, at, at your local club when you know, when you prep for the club championship, you know, they're gonna they're gonna double mow the greens, they're gonna do a little bit more, they're gonna you know, they're gonna maybe try and juice it for, you know, two or three days. But they're not doing that seven days a week all year long. It just isn't it's not it's not capable. There's certain limitations to to mother nature. Right. Otherwise you start losing grass and that's what you see, you know, these, you know, to be somewhat critical, you see, you know, you see big clubs losing, you know, well-maintained clubs. You see them lose a lot of grass it's because the demand to keep that, those greens really, really fast. I think, that's a, I think that's a part of that factor is it's just a little bit too much stress and all of a sudden the plant can't handle it, you know, no matter what we do to try and keep it growing and do certain things to it. And so, you know, we have to, we have to kind of take measure of that. You know, what what are we doing that? You know, long term, um, is this going to lead to one big catastrophe?
0: Yeah, I, so, and just I, I don't know, I I meant to drag this out, this this topic out this long, but sure. if as an as a designer, it also takes. One of the, the biggest tools out of your hands, if if you were to be hired in that context or you knew you had to be a slave to high green speeds, you're going to have, you know, there's only so much you can do around the greens and with the putting surface, where traditionally that's where you can really show off. That's where you can show creativity and artistry is on the putting surfaces in those areas right off the green. And, you know, high green speeds, you just took, had the paintbrush taken out of your hands.
1: Yep. Yeah. It limits. It limits the colors of the palette. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, well, absolutely.
0: To swing this, uh, to swing it this toward a, a much more interesting style of golf and a golf course. I don't want to go too far into this without getting into Cape Wickham. And just for those who aren't familiar, Cape Wickham is loaded on. located on King Island in Tasmania. It's actually an island between Tasmania and Southeast Australia and uh, Cape Wickham is right there on the coast. It's a, it's a fascinating piece of land. How did you get that job? What was the connection there?
1: Well, uh, Darius Oliver, the golf writer, who does the Planet Golf books. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an Australian, lives in Melbourne, and Darius and I have known each other for a long time. And uh, he became aware of the project because the original owner uh, that found the property, Andrew Purchase, who had a company that... Managed golf courses, built golf courses, uh, as well as the course racing tracks and things like that. So anything that was turf, you know, agronomy-related and things like that. And worked throughout Australia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, things like that, building, you know, high-end golf courses, too. You know, Jack Nicklaus signature courses and stuff like that. And he was was on King Island surfing with his sons and, and some buddies. And he saw this property, and he was just blown away and the property's for sale and he's like wow this would be an incredible golf course with and he bought the bought the land he didn't have a he didn't have a solid plan or an investor or anything like that um but he thought this was just you know it was it was too interesting and you know how could we do something here and so uh darius uh met with andrew and ended up you know kind of giving him some advice and saying you know hey there's there's a few guys in the world that can do this property justice cause it's so complex. Um, and I was one of those guys, he didn't, and Andrew didn't know me and, and it ended up that he said, you know, Hey, could Mike come over and, you know, no guarantees, but could he, you know, look at this and try and solve some of these issues that we might have, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so I went over and we met and we hit it off right away and, um, talking construction and dirt and, you know, how amazing the site was, etc, But sort of figured out the routing there in that first two weeks that I went there. You know, we had a general idea of where it was going to go. And um, and so that's kind of how the process started. So that goes way back to, uh, let's see, that's like 2012, somewhere in there. And we had um, some of the property is on what's called Crown Land, which is the right along the coast that the government owns. And... That land is available to farmers and things, and but um, for the purposes of what we wanted to do, you know, we were thinking about how the golf golf holes needed to fit on the coastline, and so there was a permitting process involved with that. about utilizing and getting a long-term lease with the government to utilize that that space, and uh, so that took a, that took a process that took some time to do that type of stuff, and in the meantime, uh, Andrew. Um, got a partner involved at Duncan Duncan Andrews, different. <laughs> Andrew Purchase is the original guy. Duncan Andrews is the, um, a guy who's a businessman in Melbourne, has a couple golf courses there. And so he w- he had been in the golf business and ultimately he became the partner and the investor that was going to own and operate the, the property. So I ended up going over there with uh, my family, you know, I'd made a bunch of trips before and after, but we, there was a six-month stretch there where we did the main building. And, and so I was there. My family went over. We lived down the island. Um, it's just the most incredible, diverse site that I've ever seen for a golf course, period, because it's got so many different types of landforms and relationships with the water and how you experience the water, and how the golf experiences the water, and things. So we've got cliffside holes. 60-foot cliff off the first hole. The second hole gets down closer to the water. Um, third hole, you know, there's, you've, it's not a full inlet that you hit over there, but it's pretty close to that. And then you kind of play inland a little bit, but on this headland that the first five holes are on, and then you go fully inland on from six through nine. You're in dune land that's a little bit further away from the ocean, but you still have a relationship. So you see the water in the distance and you get oriented a a bunch of different ways and there's really phenomenal, that's maybe the best golfing ground on the property through there. And then the 10th hole plays back down right to the shore and right at basically at sea level. It's just adjacent to that and it's practically in the ocean. So you're you're experiencing all these different, different kind of environments and proximity to the water, uh, visually how you experience or, or go at the water. You know, it's not just a straight shoreline that goes back. It's very diverse. The 12th hole then being a real dramatic short, short par 4 that plays up uh, with a big drop-off on the left. And then 13 goes inland again, uh, back to the clubhouse. So we have 13 holes that return to the clubhouse. And then the last five holes, what we call the lighthouse loop, uh, plays interiorly out 14 and 15 to the lighthouse and then along the shore 16 17 18 on the way back in finishing with 18 which is a um, naturally sandy cove beach uh, called victoria cove so the beach is in play on the drive and adjacent to the green you know you push it right grab your wedge and see if you can get it back in play so it's really it's you know it's super spectacular but What's exciting to me is that is that the, the the holes progress and you know, the transition and the flow of those works really, really well and you experience a lot of different things and you have exposure to the water but ultimately it's the golf that shines and it gives you that variety and and things and you know, it's one of those places where you finish and you wanna you wanna turn around and you'll tee it up right away again, which is that's kind of the ultimate. That's yeah. the ultimate goal, right? Absolutely, yeah. I wanna, I'll, yeah. I'll
0: talk more about the holds in just a second. But going back to how you got the job, did did they just say, "Okay, this is yours, Mike," or, or do you know what, if they were talking seriously that, to other architects who came out and walked the land? And, and how did their decision process go, as far as you know?
1: Well, when I went over and did that first two-week stint and stuff, you know, it was you know they paid me for my time to be able to do that, and we figured out you know, a bunch of the issues that we knew were going to be somewhat problematic. And so, you know, ultimately after that two weeks, it was kind of, you know, Hey, you're the guy to do this. You know, you, you've really got a handle on this. You've mm-hmm. got to feel about that stuff. So, um,
0: So they, they uh, narrowed in on you pretty early in the process.
1: Yeah. There, there had been another routing that, that had been done by somebody else, um, early on in the process that utilized some of the other, you know, the bigger dunes of the property. Uh, but that was um, there was a section uh, of property that I ended, that we ended up utilizing, which is really sort of um, a big portion of that six through ten, eleven, which is south of mm-hmm. what the original parcel was. So um, the original architect really didn't didn't look beyond that and look at you know maybe that solution and use some of these bigger sand dunes, which are really dramatic. But uh, would end up making for something that doesn't flow as well, you because know, you'd have these really big, broad uphill holes. You know, have to get to get to the view and get to the downhill part. Um, and so, really, I sort of recognized what it was and figured out, you know, that stuff early on, and and that's kind of how I got the job. That's yeah, how that's, awesome. that's how it worked out.
0: Yeah. on On the Cape Wickham website, they have some wonderful before and after pictures of the site in each hole. And it, it looks like some, there are certain places around the property that just absolutely suggested themselves to golf holes. And the first one that, you know, as the, uh, through a photograph that I noticed was the green at seven, which sits in a, in a natural uh, dune bowl. And then you probably identified that right away, and then uh like another one that that run through that you just spoke of ten the the green at ten sits right down in an almost in like in a natural bay and then eleven and twelve yep. curling up yep. uh, along the rocks there um, yeah so they look like there were a lot of golf holes just waiting to be to be revealed out there,
1: yeah, and um there's there's a bazillion golf holes on the property right um, the key is is how do you get them to flow together and work mm-hmm. and you know, still to this day, there's there's a hole that I saw, you know, in the dunes early on, which was a, like a 330-yard par-4 that played off of a of a dune ridge kind of in the opposite direction of where that seventh hole is. Um, the green would have been near where the seventh T's are, mm-hmm. and um, it was a really, really cool thing because it was sort of low profile, and there's this big, broad ridge, which is um, would affect the drive and if you, you know, if you carried it just right you might you might be able to bounce along the ridge and trickle it on the green if you pulled it a little you might you might be blind and you know you have a shot but you're not going to you might see the top of the flag stick but you might not see the surface of the green and if you push it a little bit you might be in a hollow with a better angle so so it was a really it was a fantastic little short par four and you know unfortunately it just didn't jive with some of the other things and, and ultimately where the where the where the routing went, um, you know, I, I still sort of, you know, I, I'm pining a little bit to like, wow, that would have been a really cool hole. But that happens on most projects, too. There's a lot of, there's a lot, at, at Kingsley, the first really cool hole I saw um, didn't work with anything. It was kind of in the middle of the third hole and playing backwards through the fourth hole, second hole, and to where the 6T is. It was like 500-yard par 5 over some really cool undulating ground, and, but it didn't, it didn't tie together with anything else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, those, those great holes that you see, a lot of times you got to just say, well, you know, that's a great hole, but I'd rather have these five really good holes that work together and not one great hole and then some, you know, four other marginal ones. Um, the, the overall composition is a lot more important than one hole.
0: You know, and there's, I, I can't even imagine, wrap my head around how many, how you would ever settle on a routing at a property like like this. But uh, I heard, um, I'm pretty sure I heard Tom Doak say once about when at Pacific Dunes, you know, he had so many great holes and options there. But he, he, I think he said he, he has said that he used par fives as, as transitions really to get from one, interesting spot to another and not to suggest the par fives at at Pacific Dunes are lesser holds. They're not, they're fantastic, but it's an interesting concept to use those. And I was wondering if you, if you've kind of used par fives that same way here and just looking at it, Nine and and uh, thirteen and then fifteen really do a great job of getting from one area across the property to another area where you can really kind of blast off and get into some some really cool feature holes. You know what is your what is your thoughts about using a, holes to transition into another part of the property?
1: Um, well, not just par fives. Any hole can be done that way. And I think I think what Tom's comment was was that you know there was a broad you know, flatter section of Pacific dunes, you know, in the center of the property from sort of this dramatic stuff at the beginning and, um, you know, on the first hole and the second hole and stuff. And then you had sort of a broader plateau until you got to the dramatic coastline. Mm -hmm. So I think what he was saying is, is that he was using that, you know, big expanse, you know, effectively with those par fives to go from some of the more dramatic terrain um, and build an interest in shot values with how the drives work there and to get to the more dramatic terrain at the other end of the of the valley so i think that's i think that's what tom was referencing there as far as you know cape wickham or the other courses i have uh, i haven't had a situation you know particularly like that but you do use you, you do use holes, and maybe sometimes those are more controversial holes to, to diverse, maybe more difficult sections of the property to do things. Um, sometimes things just lay there and, you know, fit, you know, fetter their way out into being that particular thing. At Wickham, uh, the ninth hole there was, you know, one of the really, really cool holes that I saw. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not a connector for anything. It's, it's one of the coolest holes in the world. Um, it's just got a really unique... Uh, sense of space because of how this uh, the valley works and ties together and you've got sort of this sandstone sort of broken down stuff way over on the left and then you had this really tiny little green site with this knob right in front of it right. that knob yeah. that's in front of the green uh, was there just like that um, we didn't like you know we could have built that we, but uh, we didn't it was just actually there and it was like how do you wedge the green in there and and so it works really well and it's it's interesting is that downwind uh, where it's easier to maybe reach the green uh, into might be the more difficult shot even though because you know because there's not a big landing area and stuff and if you got the ball and you can't really you know get enough spin on it it might just run through and then be really really challenging versus if you're playing into the wind it might actually like help hold the ball up and let it land softer and things like that so it's a, it's a it's a really cool dynamic hole. Um, the T is the highest point on the property as far as the golf course too. Uh, so even though you're well removed from the ocean, you know you have these long distance views of the ocean. And you see the tip of the lighthouse, you know, um, over over to the right and things like that. Even though it's behind a massive dune that's between you and and the clubhouse and the and and the lighthouse and things like that. Right. So so in cases I think um, you do use that and that that transition could be, you know, it could be a, it could be a five, a four, or a three in, in any sort of variety of things. And sometimes you have to use that to kind of transition and find a way to get from one portion of a property or another. That happens, well, like at Kingsley, for instance, the first hole is a big par five, and we kind of knew where the property was going, that that front nine that goes south from the clubhouse and comes back we sort of knew there was some direction there, and we knew the clubhouse needed to be in that kind of northwest corner. That was the most accessible area uh, to the road, and we didn't feel like we wanted to have a big road leading into the development. You know, it's very low-key there. So uh, it wasn't like we had to get away from the road to be feel like we're isolated because we really are isolated. And the the first hole ended up being this big par 5 just from the standpoint that the, the second landing area was a big, flat um, mining sort of center, where uh, mining from a, a gas extraction. There were a bunch of gas lines that met there. There was a transition station, and then they went to a, another gas line um, in, a, in, a future, in, a, in a former life. Um, we had to reconstruct all of that. And then the big plateau that you drive onto or drive over, Um, or to the left of, that was all manufactured in the process of knocking sand down to rebuild the second landing area. And so that hole sort of evolved from the standpoint of trying to get us to what I call the South 40, which is holes 2 through 6 and 7T, which is that big plateau that surrounds a deep sinkhole in the back there, and that's where that really cool hole the PAR-5 Um, that I saw, one of the first holes I saw on the property, but that didn't work with anything else. And Mm so taking that original par 5 out and then thinking of how 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 worked all around that that big sinkhole, now we've got five really great holes, some of them super unique um, and just different. T, you know, looking at that expanse and that whole area and then going down into a, a completely different environment, and and that was going to be it was going to be hard to get to that South Forty plateau in any other way because we couldn't go uphill on seven because that was real extreme from a low to you know up up high. But driving down makes for the really dramatic drive on number seven um, going the other way. So it was sort of a one-way ticket. And how do you kind of work your way out of that? And that's what led to. I guess you could say these are the, these are the connecting par fives. So you got one going out to get all the way there. That could have been broken up into a couple of different holes if you wanted, but I think it worked better that way. And then seven leading out of it. So I guess I did do the connector holes, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I don't want to get
0: in, I don't want to get in trouble again. So as long, as you, as long as it's coming from you.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, you, you finally get around. You know, yeah. you're correct. Yeah, you can use them as connector holes. <laughs> well, it,
0: just as you're talking about uh, golf course design and routing, and every you know everything is really half of it is if, if not more is problem solving. You know, if you you're going to be faced with difficulties, you're not always going to get the the perfect site. Once you've solved the problems and unlocked the keys to the to the property, and you going and you've found a routing that works, how much? Effort and to what degree do you put into making golf holes specifically visually appealing? You know, I think there are some people who would say, no, we're just going to pay attention to the shot values and the shots and how the ball is going to react off the land. And it'll, that will in itself will create the beauty. But do you approach your any particular holes with an uh, aesthetic purpose or an aesthetic goal?
1: Uh, yeah, you do, certainly. So it depends on the situation. So uh, Cape Wickham, it's so dramatic, you, you know, you don't have to do anything to make it dramatic. All you got to do is stand there mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, the first thing – people see pictures and they uh, – but the first thing they do is when they stand there is their jaw drops and they go, oh, <laughs> insert expletive. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's that amazing. It's just an, an incredible place and visually spectacular and beautiful. So did you, did you work case, to work the
0: lighthouse into the into – the, Aiming points or into the backdrop specifically?
1: Uh, yeah, you do in, in some cases there. So the drive on four is sort of blind, semi-blind, and that lighthouse serves as a marker point uh, for that. It gives you a gauge. You know, you can kind of work off of that, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the second shot on fourteen. But that um, it, it serves as a beacon or as a as a locating mark too. So there's lots of ways that you can do stuff um, with that, whether it's a landmark. Um, something like that which is 48 meters tall I mean that's incredible yeah. then you know on the so there you're trying to downplay maybe doing stuff dramatic you're trying to make it functional because it's dramatic enough anyway as it is and you want to make sure that the is all real good and that you have shot options and all these types of things um, versus you know an inland course you're trying to maybe jazz it up in certain cases A the theme so at Kingsley, it's a, it was a forested area. It had been clear-cut 15 years before we started the project, and there was a lot of scrub and overburden and things like that. That was out. That was a, it. Was a mess, kind of. You know, it wasn't a good, healthy forest. And so the whole concept was: okay, we're going to develop an open, you know, fast-running fescue surface. We've got great soil here, and bunkers are going to serve as you know, the highlights and stuff. So there's a lot of bunkering, Uh, much of it very functional, and some of it, um, you know, more demonstrative and developing sort of a theme. So the sixth hole technically has, I think, 26 bunkers on it. Now that seems insane, but really it's sort of six bunkers, seven bunkers, and it's sort of two dunescapes. That's sort of a combination of lots of bunkers and sandy waste and things that tie it in, and that's that sort of forms the pinch point in the throat that you hit through on the approach there. So in that way, you know, you're using you're using bunkers in a in a variety of ways. They're they're serving as a hazard. They're serving as a theme throughout the golf course. They're serving as visual markers uh, or ecosystem sort of management type things too. And then you go to gray walls up in the up which has all these granite walls you know 60 foot vertical walls and rock outcroppings and things like that there's only 36 bunkers there and half of those bunkers are on two different holes uh, because of the landforms that those were on Mm -hmm. and and in that case then rock serves as a you know as a drama or a feature and and stuff like that as well as views to lake superior which is pretty incredible too so so there's different ways of, of doing that or approaching and giving, you know, a highlight or a visual key to that. The the main thing is, is you can't just have it be all visual and eye candy and whatever. It's got to be good golf, otherwise people aren't going to play it continuously. They're going to go, oh, wow, that was beautiful, but yeah... I'd, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the most product correct. Absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely. Well, that's that's the yeah. given, and yeah. that that's what separates yeah. great architecture from from lesser architecture. And you, uh, you just mentioned you you'll use the site, you'll use the features that are indigenous to the property as much as possible. I imagine you also. Do you still actively, or is it subconsciously? Do you take, at all, do you take cues from from you know one of your heroes, Alistair McKenzie, or other old architects, or is that just kind of woven into your your already your your thought process and your intellectual analyzation strategies and bunkering placement? Is that just, or is it conscious on any level?
1: Mostly, I, mostly I think it's, it's just innate in that, that studying the old guys and, you know, being involved, uh, on projects, you know, whether it's a restoration project on their courses and things like that. Growing up at Crystal Downs, obviously McKenzie's, you know, a big factor for me in that, in that regard. But I think, you know, subconsciously and innately, that stuff, you know, I've been in the business for a long, long time. So um, I think that breeds itself into the work. Um, and that that's sort of an approach, too, because I take a more naturalistic approach where I'm working with what the site gives me and trying to find out what's innately a part of that and turn that into something that's unique for golf instead of, you know, there's there's certainly purposes where you got to move a lot of dirt or do this or that, but like at Kingsley, um, we moved a lot of dirt. Half of the dirt that we, which wasn't a lot of dirt, it's but in in compared to maybe other projects. But in comparison to that, half of the dirt that we moved on project was moved on the first hole to restore uh, um, you know a former usage, which was the which was the gas transmission area, mm-hmm. and then to create sort of the plateau where the where the right side landing area is. So there were there's ways of doing that. And then, um, and then, so sometimes exactly. though, something, something within a site or on a hole or something, you know, you're, you're directly relating that to, you know, hey, this would be a great spot for a Redan hole, and then you're trying to implement those sort of features and maybe a little bit different to maintain sort of the integrity and the design qualities or ideas and concepts that mm-hmm. go along with that. Yeah. And so um, you, you do do that consciously sometimes, and you try and find a way to do it a little bit differently. That's the interesting thing about looking at uh, McDonald and Rainer's work and stuff. They, you know, they always were doing a short hole and in a, in a Radan and a road hole. And you know, how did they do it differently on this site versus that site? Because obviously, uh, Yeamans Hall is a lot different than Chicago Golf Club, which had these deep ravines and the really unique landforms. And Yeamans Hall is sort of low country. You know, it's much subtler, but you know, still had some elevation. Change so there's lots of ways that a way to sort of gauge or see how they did things differently. Yeah. To me, that's that's an interesting aspect of looking at their work. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, going back to uh, Cape Wickham really quickly, you described it as maybe one of the greatest golf natural sites that you've come across. Do you feel and you, so you got you got the the opportunity to design a golf course on one of these rare you know one of a kind. Sites around the world—they've come up in the last twenty years, occasionally, and and you've you've got one now, and it's done pretty well. It's I think it's in golf's top one hundred now, and it's moving up. But do you do you feel like it's the golf course is getting the credit that it truly deserves, or do you feel like it's kind of still flagging behind some other places unfairly?
1: Um. Well, it's uh, yeah. Golf magazine has it ranked seventy one, I think, and the Golf Digest has it at twenty fourth in the world. Um, so it's got it's got. <laughs> it's to move a, up from that. Gotten, a lot of, gotten a lot of nice recognition. Um, yeah, I you know I'm I'm very pleased with that. Uh,
0: should it should it be so, higher?
1: Of course, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's all I'm trying to get you to say. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it you know the ratings game is something that you always aspire to, and that's fun. Um, and it's nice to see that recognition, and you, you can sit there and you can argue this course belongs here or doesn't belong here or whatever, and that's, that's based on opinion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a remote place, but it's very accessible. It's only a 40-minute flight from Melbourne, and there's certainly you know, 4 or 5 million people in Melbourne. Um, a lot of people visit the city of Melbourne. Golfers especially are going to go to Melbourne because of the Sandbelt if they're if they're aggressive travelers and are trying to seek out, you know, they're gonna go seek out Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and Victoria Golf Club. Mm-hmm. So it's very accessible from that regards. And obviously the Barn Boogle and Lost Farm on uh, the northeast coast at uh, Bridport and on mainland Tas, um that's been very successful also. So I think there is uh more and more things going on there and actually um I'm I'm heading to Cape Wickham uh, for three weeks uh, this coming month in March to, um, you know, reassess, you know, where things are at. There's a new owner, uh, Vietnamese ownership, that's bought the um, resort. And they're looking at developing more lodging and, you know, you know very possibly another golf course. So um, all of that uh, is going to, you know, expand and, you know, they're going to get more uh, development and, you know, influx of, of capital and things like that, and that's going to be, I think, helpful, you know, to bring more people there and, and to look at it. So it's it's done really well, very exciting. Uh, certainly, uh, I, I think it's the most spectacular site I've ever seen for a golf course. Um, you know, it's just really, really incredible. Right. Um, and then you got the lighthouse there, you know, so all these great, <laughs> someone joked with me, they said, well, of course, all, all great golf courses have to have a lighthouse like you know Harbor town i say, well this this one dwarfs all of them i mean it's 157 feet tall it's just uh, it's just phenomenal uh, yeah. um and the settings you know spectacular the island has a complete different vibe to it so it's very cool in that regards too and um you know so that's you know that's really nice um Kingsley and Graywalls have gotten recognition from Golf Week um, here, you know, in the states, top hundred, you know, modern in, in their thing, and I certainly think that the, you know those hold up and and have qualities that are as good as some of the courses that they're ranked with and are that are above it. But um, you know, we're all biased to certain things. You know, it's golf's about having fun, and these these those golf courses are fun, and um, you know, to me. When when someone comes away and says, wow, you know, I was over here last week and I had this shot, and then I was here and I had this shot, and, you know, that was really cool. That's about the highest compliment anybody can give me. You know, they they were sort of exuberant about, you know, just a golf shot. You know, and, and you know, for most of the average golfers, we have one or two good shots, you know, from each round that, that are memorable to us. You know, we're not just sticking, you know, eight irons and nine irons in there on every shot and wedges on every shot like the pros are, you know, those things all sort of tend to blend together on the PGA tour. These guys are really good and, you know, they're hitting shots in there, but for an average golfer, when they pull off a shot, whether that is, you know, a great drive, a putt, a long putt, or, um, you know, a really good hybrid that, you know, rolled up onto the green and used the contour and got close to the pin and I sank the putt and, you know, made my only birdie in you know the last three weeks or something that's um that's cool and that that's that's kind of what the game's about you know that's that's kind of what it was growing up you Mm -hmm. know and learning the game and doing that um and so uh to me that's 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 exciting that's that's fun for me to have the reactions like that from from golfers whether they're regular golfers good golfers average golfers they all have they all have an opinion and and it's interesting to hear the differences.
0: Uh, one of your first jobs was, or maybe your first job on a golf course. At a, I shouldn't. Know, you worked at you worked at Crystal Downs when in your youth all the time. But you worked with Tom Doke. It was at High Point, I believe, and that was really kind of his first project as well. What was your first impression of Tom at that point? Um, what can you tell us about him at, as a as a boss or as a as an architect at that point in his life?
1: Yeah. So I, I met Tom when he when High Point was more than halfway done it was you know they were growing it in actually at that point uh-huh. uh this was the uh, spring of 1988 and so i had uh come back up north to michigan i was getting married and um i went back to crystal downs and was doing work on the on the golf course there and i was working doing work on the bunkers and i talked with fred muller the pro there who's an old old friend of mine gave me my first real job working in the pro shop for him, you know, ten years prior to that or so and uh when I was a kid. And I said, you know, this is what I keep going back to and, you know, didn't really think about there being a you know, a job that was actually, you know, designing golf courses and going around and doing that. And he said, you yeah, know, do you know Tom Doak, have you met him? I'm like, no and he's like, Well that's the project that Tom Mead, who had been my boss at Crystal Downs, he he had been the superintendent there when I was working on the crew, and he had come over to to um, uh, had met Tom Doak and and ran the project there and did the growing and you know helped him build high point and stuff like that. And he said you should go over there and meet him. They and it ended up that Tom had a project down in Myrtle Beach that was coming up wasn't you know it wasn't started yet it didn't really have a start date but so. I went away for a couple of months, came back, helped them finish up uh, High Point, and then uh, we moved, my new bride and I, we moved to Myrtle Beach and uh, and helped uh, Tom, you know, build that. All these, you know, great ideas. He'd, you know, been over in um, England for, in Scotland and Ireland for, you know, nine months or so when he had the Dreer Award. And you know, we were always talking about, golf shots and things like that. And obviously my background at Crystal Downs um, and working on that is a very, very nice primer. You know, it's a basically graduate work there to, you know, spend every day of the summer on the golf course mowing greens or doing whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, really valuable. And we were, we were constantly talking about, you know, cool shots is cool shots at, at that point, I had never been over to Scotland or England or Ireland, but, just talking about the concepts of golf and what the shots and what we were trying to do and build that was, that was really, really neat. So was
0: he, was he like an, an easy guy to get along with an easy guy to befriend? Did your personalities match up? What was he, what was he like? What did you think of him?
1: Yeah, well he's uh, Tom's very intellectual. He's a super smart guy and we were always just talking about golf. So <laughs> we uh-huh. were totally absorbed in that outside of that. You know, we, we didn't we didn't do a lot or whatever um because we were on site all day you know together (laughs) so so certainly we got together you know here and there and stuff like that but we got along you know quite well i think but tom is a he's a more quiet guy um he's very very smart and but wasn't nearly as social maybe back then as he is you know now and he's a great writer and he knows how to you know communicate really well with that and he's got this great knowledge and understanding of all these great courses in the world and so that to me was really exciting we were always you know how can we make this the best hole that we can make it and how does it work with this and with that and and I always felt comfortable you know hearing about what his concept was and trying to carry that out but you know if I had an idea or something you know he's was open to that and oh that's that'd be cool yeah let's try that and if we tried it and we didn't like it you know we just blew it up and he did something else yeah and um you know he's real he's real hands-on and and that's how that's how he learned from pete Dye and that's Kind of how I learned from him too.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, in, in the your, the business is pretty small. Golf course architecture and designers—it's a small world. And you know, I think you, everybody crosses paths a lot. Is it ever strange that to think that there are situations where you might be competing against you know your old, I guess your boss, you know, for certain jobs?
1: Um. Yeah, I guess that's just the nature of the business, though. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's um, same thing. Gil Hans. Um, Gil had worked. Uh, he was in grad school uh, at Cornell, same thing that Tom had done through the landscape architecture program there, and um, so he had worked at High Point uh, the previous summer when they were like in the dirt phase and stuff, that was kind of, you know, he was, you know, sort of the first intern or whatever, ended up working for Tom for about two and a half, three years on, you know, basically at the very end of High Point, but then down at Myrtle Beach on the Heathlands course at the Legends, and then uh, the Black Forest course up in northern Michigan here, where I ran that project for Tom. Uh-huh. So, uh, but Gil worked, um, you know, at the same time. He when he he came back when he finished his degree, and we were at Myrtle Beach, and uh, um, so he kind of came in at the end of that. And so, yeah, Gil and I have worked together, and you know, we're on our own, and you know, compete in certain projects, you know, with Tom. Um, they have larger bodies of work than I do a little bit bigger organizations and things really it's just me and you know I I have Joe Hancock who is a guy that I've known in my whole life and um, he got into golf um, in a different way and was a superintendent class A superintendent for a number of years but Joe does shaping and project management and you know agronomy stuff for me and and so um, they probably have a you know Tom and Gil they probably have an advantage just because they have a you know some more exposure but you know hopefully you know Wickham you know Wickham you know people see that recognize that and they'll give me a call instead yeah. of instead of maybe Tom or Gill <laughs> Sorry guys <laughs> Yeah <laughs> It's unfortunate
0: there's there's not more work to go around cuz you know there there's guys those guys, those guys yeah. and and yeah. Bill seem to just you know be gobbling up everything it's, maybe they should retire yeah. for a couple of years <laughs>
1: Make it easier for the rest of us, yeah. Yeah, because it's. Oh, so, I mean, and, and you know, we get—I get along with all those guys, and um, you know, we're we're all friends and stuff like that, and and they all do great work too. So, you know, I, yeah. you know, I respect the work that they do. I'm interested in the work that they do. I like to see their their work, and you know, that's you know that that's also cool. That's that's neat to get together and go, hey, well, you know, because cause having worked together or being in the business, it's also fun to go, you know, why did you do that? You know, what was going on there? What was the what was the what was the deal there or something? Because there's always things that happen on a project that you just you know, you you don't know what the real story was because you weren't there. Mm-hmm. And certain things happen and you know, someone might criticize a hole that you do or this or that, but maybe there was some you know, something that was in the dirt there or some environmental thing or, you know, maybe the client, you know, was I really want to do a hole like this, and then you try and figure out a way to do that. And maybe sometimes it isn't the best thing, or you know, maybe maybe you're just restricted because of a property boundary or something like that. And you try and find a creative way to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah.
0: You also worked for uh, for Tom Fazio for a little over a year. Compared to you know somebody like Pete Dye or or even Tom Doak or Gil Hans now who's on television, for somebody who's had as long an illustrious as career as Tom Fazio, at least from where I sit, it seems like he's the most unknown person, you know, his, his architecture out there. But you just, he, I don't, I don't know if he does a lot of press or a lot of interviews, but what, what was, what's he like? What was your interact? What were your interactions with Tom Fazio like? And what's your impression of him as a, as a person and an architect?
1: He's, uh, he's, a, he's a great man, wonderful man, um, person, family man. You know, his, and the focus, like from a business standpoint, is he was always trying to, you know, the focus was always 100% on how can we build the best product for what we need to do for this client on this property? How do we get to there? So and the, the way I first met Tom, it was very briefly, was uh, after I'd done my graduate work. Prior, Actually, this was just prior to doing my graduate work. I uh, worked at the Treetops Resort up in Gaylord, Michigan, and Mr. Fazio was building um, a course there. And this was this was the second golf course. There was an original golf course by Robert Trent Jones, and this was a new section of property that was north of where the where the where the original golf course was. And um, I was brought in there to run the finish crew, teach the superintendent how to do a grow-in and um you know do all the button-up type stuff so there was the main construction crew and so I met Mr. Fazio very briefly there but I really got to know his a couple of his associates there Dennis and Kevin who were really on site you know more frequently and doing stuff and um stayed in touch with them and then when I finished my my graduate work at the University of Michigan I um you know was looking for you know a new job and um um, they happened to have a couple of different projects where they needed somebody to be on site and running those, and running those projects and working as the design associate sort of on, on site throughout the project. And one of those was Hudson National in New York, which was a you know, really high-end, yeah. uh, high-profile type job on a difficult property where there were a lot of wetlands, a lot of restrictions. There was blasting and rock and a lot of, a lot of you know, difficult situations to deal with. And they didn't normally have an associate on site for their projects at that time. So I was sort of brought on to do a stint for them for about a year. It ended up being about 15 months where I worked there and then at the Cordillera Valley Club in Colorado. And um, the interesting thing is when I, you know, I had met Mr. Fazio, but um, when I went out, to sort of find out about the project in New York, that was the first thing that we were going to do. He was kind of interviewing me, and I was kind of interviewing him, you know, and sort of seeing if this was going to work or match up or whatever. And so I'd had a lot of field experience working with, with Tom Doak and um, other projects during the summers when I was in graduate school and, um, and all my work growing up, you know, on maintenance. And so... Um, there was a good fit there because there was an ownership that had a one of their guys was on site for the construction all the time. Um, They had already started work and it was a thing where um, Tom Fazio came in and was doing sort of the the silver shovel you know this is the groundbreaking you know there were a lot of people around and you know he you know made a nice speech and talked about this or that and then we turned around and and he and Tom Marzoff, his main associate on the project there, and the owner representative that was, you know, basically doing the construction, we, we, the four of us walked down the first fairway and started talking about, you know, work that had happened and what was being done. And this is the first time I've seen the property. <laughs> so, so it was, you would think that that would be kind of intimidating, but really he was very easy to talk to. And I felt comfortable, you know, asking questions or, you know, what about this over here, you know, and, and trying to, first of all, because I'd never been on the property, so I was trying to understand what was going on. But also, he was very open to listening to any, any sorts of ideas. And um, that was, I think, really remarkable. Um, it, was, it was a fantastic, you know, experience for me to work with him and work with his organization because he, he's really great one-on-one. You're just having a conversation. is very easy to do that. He's real great in a small group. He's great being able to sort of handle, you know, maybe us business guys that are trying to build the golf course for him. And then he can have eight, you know, investors or main, you know, charter members like following along and, you know, and being excited to be, you know, and something that they're never going to probably ever do again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he, he Just how he can do that. He can walk into a room with 150 people and never look at a note and talk for a half an hour and answer questions and everything and he's spot on on everything. It's just um, really, in, he's an incredible individual yeah. um, and it was a, a great experience for me. You know, it was really, really worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to appreciate his designs a lot more and his, his approach. Uh, I think when I was younger and you know, really gung ho into the strategy and the, you know, the working with the land kind of it, all the stuff that, that you're great at, you know, I, it's easy to look at a lot of his courses and, you know, say they're anti-strategic or they're just, everything's there just for the visual impact. But I don't, I don't think that that's always true. It is probably here and there, but it, but it is a, it was a different experience for you, right? His operation, as you just labeled it, is really the opposite of the way you were trained in the way you work. Now you, you're hands on, you live on site, you're there every day. It's it's you and building the golf course. And his, he's a, you know, he's got a, a fleet of people, or at least back in the nineties he had a, an entire office working for him. So can, are you able to look at his golf courses now and, and, and appreciate them uh, for what they are aside from him just being like a, a really great person?
1: Oh yeah, sure. And you know, We talked about Pete Dye before and how Pete's always, like, pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I had a a criticism, I would say, um, you know, he's had really great sites and lots of opportunities and stuff like that. But in a lot of situations, he didn't necessarily push the envelope, you know, like Pete pushes the envelope and kind of, you know, sometimes goes over the edge. I think Tom um, does, you know, things that are really, really well done fantastic, you know, agronomically everything works, you know, the strategy is good, all these things but there's that there's that last little push maybe that would make things, you know, would be more attractive to like what you're saying is like, okay, guys that overanalyze and want to look at, at X, Y, or Z um, his is a, a little bit more conservative in that in that regard. Mm-hmm. But then you look at, you know, what he did at Shadow Creek and you go that's just you know, here, this was flat desert with nothing, and they created this oasis, you know, nobody really had done anything on that scale at that point. Um, So, you know, from what I just said, saying he's conservative, and then you go look at that, and you go, that's radical. That's, yeah. So that's pretty amazing, you know. So he's almost, it's
0: almost impossible to, to define. I mean, the, his golf courses visually locationally uh, from the shaping, they, they run the gamut there. Some, some are, you know, almost depressingly simple and, and under designed. It's, it feels like some others. I've, I've seen golf like world woods in, in Florida is, I mean, that's a plus. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's so exciting yeah. and it's a, yeah. it's a really interesting site. But I've I've seen other courses that I'm I'm wouldn't have thought it would be a Fazio course because they're they're really interesting and there are some really dramatic green contour and and other interesting things going on. So
2: yeah, yeah.
0: I guess maybe what you could say ultimately is that you know, he if there's a criticism, would you agree? I'll ask you this: it, it, is sometimes he a little too beholden to his client's wishes instead of guiding the client, trying you know making sure he delivers what the client's asking for and sometimes that that wish is not uh, something dramatic or as bold as we'd like it to be
1: well I think I think that's I mean that's what I was saying before with maybe mm-hmm. that he's conservative and that our focus was a hundred percent on doing the the greatest best thing that we can do and also merging that in with what the client you know wanted and finding a way to do that and to do it at a super high level um, so you know not you know okay if we spare no expense at, say, this, what does that give us and, you know, how does that work and how does that fit within the budget and things? You know, we had budgets, obviously. These things, how can we take this thing and transform that into something that's playable? Uh, we know this is, you know, this maybe the age range of this is going to be, you know, this is going to be mainly retired guys, you know. They've got to be able to get around this golf course. It can't be too severe. It can't be, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, too elaborate, you know, Tom isn't probably not going to build Oakmont, you know, he's not going to build something like Mr. Founds did, mm-hmm. that, you know, this is going to punish people, <laughs> you know, that's not his, that's not his mantra, That's and that's fine, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. um, I think, so that's why I say, you know, he's sort of conservative, but then you look at, you know, he takes big, huge sort of concepts and, you know, and made them happen like Shadow Creek and I haven't been to World Woods um yeah you know, it's one of the places I you know need to get to uh Black Diamond you know same thing you know took a quarry and kind of did stuff and you know did some dramatic stuff there too so um those types of things I think he has a you know he has a broad career and he's done all this great stuff um and his focus has been to do you know the best possible job that he can do and and that's always that was always the focus that I felt when we were, when we were building this and, you know, how do you, how do you get to that solution and stuff? Um, which is, you know, it's pretty darn good. Um, you know, his, his name maybe isn't bandied about because maybe the minimalist movement and what Ben and Bill and Tom and Gil and, and you know, I and include you? myself in that, you mm-hmm. know, are doing maybe. Um, but that doesn't, you know, he's, he's, still done a lot of really dramatic stuff and you know he's got plenty of golf courses that are on the top 100 lists and all that too you know yeah, all he's, over gotten,
0: he's gotten he's so. gotten um, he's gotten projects with really nice hardy budgets and he's been able to go in and like at shadow creek is an extreme but he's been able to go into a lot of properties and and move things around and, and create the golf does that would that a project like that have any interest to you 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 just described yourself in the minimalist movement you like to work off the earth but would it would you like to someday get a project where you have to kind of almost create everything out of nothing
1: um yeah I, I think there's a different challenge to that and I think that's that's interesting so you know if you have this totally blank environment you know what do you create out of it I guess I sort of have this I have this belief that every property no matter how simple flat minimal it is there's something inherent to that property that you, you can grab and utilize now you may have more dirt to do that but how do you build on that or how do you build something that's in here i think to me that's um that's what's interesting about golf is each site is unique or or different or has something and how do you maximize what that has and then what do you do to augment that so to create something you know out of you know say nothing um to do that um there are, there are ways and there are there are needs to do that in, in lots of different situations so I think I get to that in certain places and do more when you have to do more and um, I think that would be that's a that's a really different challenge than I'm normally faced with and, and in a lot of ways that sounds you know that sounds exciting and that sounds like a both experience and something that would be really you know fun to do and fun to fun to try and, and you know,
0: yeah, it would be interesting to see if if to watch you get a, a project like that, and it doesn't have to be a flat desert, but it could be just kind of a, a nondescript property. And would you try to make it look like a natural sandy property, or would you go something, you know, on the opposite extreme, like an in, a totally engineered, like peat dye kind of look, where everything is a little sharper and and edgier? Have you ever thought about it?
1: Um. Yeah, and I think I think the direction that you would go with that would depend on a lot of different factors. So sure. that's gonna depend on where, what the client has and, you know, what might be. I mean, is it you know, is it like a uh is it a waste site, you know, is it a is it an old uh mine site or something? So like the mines golf course in Grand Rapids, Michigan that I did mm-hmm. uh in two thousand four, um that's a that was a section of ground that's over the old gypsum mines, which were, you know, underground mining. So the, the upper ground was actually basically all sand and trees and forests and stuff. So it was really a natural site, even though it is on a mining property. Um, but there's a portion of that um, that is um, where we want to put a par-3 golf course, and that, that's actually, you know, still, still in the books to happen, but they're, they're mining sand from that area um because they need they need good material for development in the grand rapids region and ultimately that's going to become a par three so that's going to kind of that is sort of what you're talking about which is there is a there's basically this area that's totally blown up and is going to have a bunch of overburden you know left over from grabbing this or grabbing that and we're going to have to figure out a way to sort of make something out of that and make it fun and make it exciting and and um so, um, and that's a different thing where we're trying to, we're going to be trying to create something somewhat natural, but we're also going to try and make it where it's, um, you know, easily traversable and, you know, gets people around and it's a fun little, fun little, um, shots and then, you know, short game area and, you know, putting green and things like that. So it's an auxiliary, it's an, it's not like a full on, um, it's not the full on big, Big golf course, but um, there, there are opportunities to do that and having to move dirt. And um, I, I think that I think that stuff can happen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: So we'll stay tuned for that. That sounds cool. Um, we're running. We're running a little long on time, so we'll kind of start to head toward the exit here. But sure. before I get to a, a few last questions, you're not a member of the ASGCA. Is what's your what's your reasoning behind that? Why didn't you want to? Why haven't you been involved with that organization?
1: Uh, really it's just, it's a, you know, victim of circumstance or whatever. Um, Tom Doak's not a, not a member. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I started out, I wasn't, um, you know, wasn't really ingrained cause he wasn't in that, um, Mr. Fazio is and stuff, but I, you know, I was just really with them, you know, my, my period of employment with them was, you know, specifically to be on site for those two projects. It wasn't really a long-term thing. I think maybe I would have, you know, if I had worked for Mr. Fazio, you know, on a more permanent basis, longer term, you know, maybe that would have gone that way. Uh-huh. Um, it's just gotten to maybe to the point where, you know, I've been busy and, um, that's another thing to sort of monopolize time. Um, you think that, would it... and I didn't, I haven't really had any mentors that, you know, were pushing me and saying, Hey, you know, you really ought to do this. And, um, so, do, you,
0: do you look at it as potentially a, a useful tool, or is it just a, a kind of a boys' club?
1: Um, well, I think... There
0: I are a few girls, female members, by it, the way, so it's yeah. not exclusively boys.
1: <laughs> right. Is it right, just a social so. club? <laughs> put it that way. Um, yeah, well, it, it's kind of, there's, you know, it's it's an interesting thing, because there's no licensing type thing for golf course architecture. You know, Pete Dye was in insurance salesman and you know other guys were professional golfers and now they're designers okay so um, you know there are some people that have trained specifically and wanted to do this and have done that and stuff and some of those people are in the ASGCA and some of them aren't um, and so it's not a, it's not a negativity to me towards that organization or anything um, I think it it's it, it doesn't hold any sort of legal binding but that's not necessarily you know, that's not necessarily good or bad. So, um civil engineers are fewer and far between. So uh the SGA doesn't doesn't have any sort of legal authority like uh civil engineers do and things like that where they're where things are based on you know, them stamping drawings and things like that. Um and so it wasn't necessarily required for me to do something like that and you know, it's a it's a time and an expense thing. I guess I have, you know, only so much time and I have only so many funds to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and I think that it's valuable, but I also, you know, I also go and, you know, if they, they take annual trips and, um, you know, they talk about, you know, things within the organization. And I think I do that with a lot of, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry and some of those guys are members of the ASGSA and some of them aren't. We talk about a lot of the the same types of things, and um, I go and take trips and, you know, go look at golf courses and things like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I go to Ireland and, you know, made a trip last spring, you know, that was kind of like, you know, my big trip last year was was going over there for two and a half weeks, and, you know, Mm -hmm. I was just going around by myself, met up with friends and things along the way, Um, people that I knew over there and stuff like that, but, you know, a lot of it was just going just to walk golf courses, you know, play sometimes, but... Not all the time, just to, that's how you learn and experience and, you know, see different stuff and you see different nuances of that versus just playing golf courses too.
0: Sure. Yeah. I asked this question to everybody that I've, I've had on the show so far. The question is this, what, what is the best modern golf course that you have not been involved with building, uh, that you've seen say something in the last 20 or 30 years?
1: Um... Good question a lot of good stuff out there there is, um,
0: is there's something that just has a, a personal appeal to you it, you know just...
1: yeah well I well I think you know from that modern standpoint I guess I'd have to say uh, Sandhills because mm-hmm. um, at that time when I saw it uh, we were out in Colorado I was working for Mr. Fazio on the Cordillera Valley Club which was you know we had to build something on the side of a mountain you know next to the road so there was some dirt work involved there and there was some stuff that we had there that was, you know, really naturally appealing. Also in the mountains, it's beautiful. Um, and it was a seven hour drive for me to go from there to Sand Hills, And I was fully, you know, geeked the whole drive there, you know, seven hour drives, not necessarily an easy thing to just solo go like, Hey, I'm going to go look at this golf course. And, um, I was literally going to drive there, spend the day there and drive back. And, um, I got there and I was just really enamored with the place, and you know, it was like, wow, it was meeting all the ex- expectations. And I had a lot of high standards of what I was hoping to see. And and towards uh, you know, sunset was happening, and I was taking a photograph, and um, all of a sudden, here I hear this golf cart come across, and, and you know, hey, hey, you know, we say hi, and it's kind of you know, the lights dim and everything. And it's this this old guy this old friend that I'd known, Harry Perkins, um, who was a member there and had joined early on and I didn't know he was gonna be there or anything like that. I'd met him through through Tom Doak, um, a number of years before. And um I was like Harry. He's Mike. He's like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it was sort of this. It, it was this. It was this great thing. This great anticipation. The golf course meeting all these expectations, and then, you know, running into my friend Harry, and um, and then, you know, instead of driving right back, he's like, "Oh, you've got to stay the night, and you know, we've got to play in the morning, and and then you can go back." <laughs> and so, sure enough, we did that, and um, uh, I had known. Um, I'd met the the owner Dick Young's cap, um, you know, a few years before that too. So I saw Dick and and all that, and Jim Urbina happened to be there that that night too. So it was this great sort of meeting of everything, and you know, having that anticipation, having the golf course meet those 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 um, sort of expectations, you know, and I, and it's hard to do when you expect something. Yeah, you go to a great place, and you know, it's great, and you know, sometimes. That doesn't take anything away from the golf course or the greatness of the golf course, but sometimes it lets you down because you're just anticipating too much, right? That didn't that didn't have that impact for me. Our drive back was just as easy as the seven-hour drive going there, yeah. so that's pretty good. That's a pretty high compliment. I,
0: and I imagine at that point in time, seeing Sand Hills live had maybe even more of an impact than it would now. Now you know we're used to seeing the Bandins and the and the Barnboogles and uh, Cape Wickham and these amazing sandy, dunesy sites. At that point in the, I guess it was probably would have been you know early '90s, mid '90s. That didn't really exist outside of Ireland. Probably that was a very unique thing to see as a setting for golf.
1: Well, it was it was a gr- it was a groundbreaking deal, certainly, and and. And developing that, you know, build it, and they will come. Thing. In fact, <laughs> Harry Harry had some T-shirts that had sort of the state of Nebraska on it with a flag, like where you know where Sandhills was, way out there in the northwest corner. And he said, "Build it, and they will come." You know, just like the <laughs> just like the movie. And so. Um, and he's like, "Here, you got to take a T-shirt." <laughs> I still have the T-shirt; it's somewhere. Um, but uh, you know, it 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 was uh, it was definitely groundbreaking and and influential in that there was it was all about great golf, and people thought, it, you know, Dick was insane. I mean, this is you know this is never going to work, and you know they said the same thing about then Band and Dunes, and you know it works because the focus is on quality, and it focuses on golf and fun and. The experience and all that too, and you know it's just it's that thing where you know you play and you just you want to go right back out and do it again, and that's you know to be involved in those types of things and to have that opportunity at, at Cape Wickham and um, yeah. that's uh, you know that's a that's a dream come true, and that you know I hope I have more opportunities to do all that stuff you know several more times. That's um, you know that's 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 what we love to do, and and that yeah. makes it. That makes
0: it all that much better. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of projects like that, we spoke about Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Bill Corr and and uh, the projects and the influence that that they've had recently. And your name always comes it comes up, sort of like right after that, the next tier. And you've throughout a lot of your career, you've been labeled things like a, the most underrated designer. And I, I think I think you've you've graduated to the to the first tier, especially with Cape Wickham and. <laughs> your renovation projects. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to announce it right here for everybody. He's not underrated anymore. You can put him on the A-list. Mike DeVries has arrived. Now I'm going to ask you, you're going to pass the, the mantle of uh, most underrated or unknown but deserving architect off to somebody else. Is there somebody in the business that, that you are a big fan of that you think does not get enough credit?
1: Well, there's... Um... There's a lot of younger guys that you know that are in kind of the same situation that I was, um, you know, for a long time. You know, where you're doing work, um, whether it's you know, partially. You know, a lot of a lot of the guys that work for, for Doke and for uh, Ben and Bill. You know, they're working on a lot of little projects for different guys here and there. And you know, that's that's hard. The business is hard. You know, everybody that you know calls and is excited about it it's like first thing I tell them, I go well business is really hard
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know I've been in the business 30 plus years 40 you know plus if you count you know all my youth growing up and working at Crystal Downs which you know is a pretty valid sort of um, thing to think about you know just because of how great it is um, that um, you know it's still a struggle and golf still gets affected by the economy so there's a lot of those um, young people that you know do really really good work, and you know maybe you don't get that recognition, um, but it's going to be hard for them to to get more and more stuff. Is is there somebody um,
0: who's who's been in the business for a while, maybe is longer longer that that you've been in, who whose work is underappreciated? Maybe an older guy.
1: Yeah, I think you know like Ron Force, who basically does a lot of restoration work. Sure. Yeah. And Ron um, is. Just about the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> um, you know, he's a very soft-spoken guy, and he goes about um, doing his craft and doing the best that he can as far as like trying to marriage what that club's needs are. And it's not necessarily always pure restoration, um, but how can he marriage that and bring in those those types of things? And you know, he's done a lot of work. Um, you know, doesn't really get talked about. You know, much I think but the amazing, and then, you know, I talk to Ron every once in a while, but, you know, when we run into each other, it's always this super friendly, you know, that's the interesting thing about the industry is you run into people, and you have this, you know, this um, affinity for design, and for excitement, and, you know, wow, you know, hey, I saw this thing, and that was really cool what you did, or this or that, you know, that's, um, that's a pretty special thing, and, you you don't always get that. I mean, it's a competitive business too. Everybody wants, you know, they want the next job. They want this or that. Um, but you know, in that that token, I think, um, Ron's, Ron's been in the business for a long time. He's been in the business, you know, for 20, 30 years and, um, has done a lot of really good stuff. And, you know, maybe that isn't, um, you know, it's not noted much because sometimes it's, he's only doing like Complexes or this or that or something and and trying to do he's always trying to do what's right for what those old guys did you know because the stuff that Donald Ross and Tillian Haas and McKenzie and Mcdonald the stuff that those guys did is all super relevant to today's average to good golfer mm-hmm. super elite golfer the pro the high level handy you know the low handicap um, high level amateurs. Um, you know they're able to take advantage of all the technology that that we're developing and the swing monitors and all that and they can just left and right but those the stuff that the old guys did and the guys like Ron and that are that are trying to maintain and retain and preserve those features that those guys did I think that's really really important because those Things are still relevant to today's everyday golfer and makes golf fun.
0: Yeah. Okay. Ron, Tag. You're it.
2: <laughs> if, if he doesn't, if he doesn't
0: like the uh, the label of most underrated, then I'll I'll get him on the show in a little bit, and he can pass it off to somebody else. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was a good one, though. Okay. I, I have a feeling I should have asked this much earlier in the our discussion, but uh, we'll 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 go out on this one. Uh, you're you're a huge fan of Alistair McKenzie. Uh, you grew up, you know, playing Crystal Downs, as we've talked about. You uh, were, you oversaw the uh, the restoration of the Meadow Club. You're consulting with the Jockey Club in Buenos Aires. So uh, you're very well-versed in McKinsey, in the world of McKinsey and, and his thoughts. Would you would you want to see Augusta National restored to the McKinsey
1: version? Oh, I think it would be super exciting. I mean, um, you know, the Masters has evolved into what it is which is the best run event in the world i think not just sporting event but you know everything's in place and perfect there and my, my brother who isn't a golfer he went down because you know he had a friend that was going and he's like you know i hey should i go and i'm like yeah you should go i mean you're going to be blown away by you know everything you know nothing is out of place and you know he came back and he was like it was incredible. <laughs> He's not a golf. He could care less about golf at all. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He doesn't play. Um, you know, he has no desire whatsoever to play golf. And he was just like, wow, that was phenomenal. But from a purist standpoint, I'd love to see the original raw golf course with you know with the ninth as a really crazy boomerang green around that central bunker right. and uh, Rays Creek just raw and you know really edgy and stuff like that. And then just you know these big wide corridors where, where you're where you're, you know you're playing and trying to figure out the best way to get at the hole, which was, um, you know Mackenzie was this massive fan of the old course at St Andrews, and that was the concept that he, he brought to America doing the Meadow Club, this his first course here was basically the old course in America there, um, and it was you know this big wide corridor where all these holes went around and you were trying to figure out your way to go there now there's there's redwood trees and things that have been planted there 50 60 70 years ago so that's changed some of that aspect but um the philosophy still holds in what he was trying to do and he was really doing that also um at augusta in a lot of ways you know where there where he certainly had pine trees and there was other vegetation but he had these big wide corridors you know huge fairways and And then it was, you know, it was just a rougher, more um, organically hewn golf course. That was something that was, you know, it had a sort of a rawness to it. And Augusta's cool. I mean, I love watching the Masters, and that brings back all these great memories, you know, sitting there when I was a kid watching it with my grandfather. And that was kind of the start of the golf season in the north for us. And, um, but from a, yeah. From a selfish perspective, I would love to see like the raw, original Mackenzie Augusta National. That'd be that'd be just incredible.
0: Yeah, M- <laughs> Mike, I I think we can talk him into it. What do you think?
1: <laughs> It'll only take a few million. Just you know? say no that. Yeah.
0: Do you want to make the phone call, or or should I call? Him? <laughs> I, I'll just I'll say I know the perfect guy. I, I've got the guy for you.
1: There you go. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> Hey, Mike. Yeah, fun project. Let me tell oh, you. It'd it be would, a fun it? project. Yeah, I think <laughs> half
0: the world might not know what the hell they were looking at after we were after you were done with it.
1: <laughs>
0: hey, yeah. look, Mike, thanks for participating. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a, a you know it's an opportunity for you to kind of expand on on any kind of answers or thoughts that you have. So I, I think you I think you took advantage of it, and I, it was great to listen to you to you speak and, and hear your thoughts on on golf and the the world that you're in. So thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, Derek. appreciate you having me, and um, always good fun, so keep it it far and sure.
0: (laughs) Okay. You too. You too. Thanks, Mike.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
0: We spoke about Tom Doak in the middle of that interview, and Mike mentioned how smart Tom was, how he was an intellectual. Well, the same could easily describe Mike DeVries. He's a comprehensive and intelligent person and a great communicator as well. You know, it's an interesting topic, an interesting thing to think about. If you were a developer or an entrepreneur or if you won the Powerball and you had a world-class property that you wanted to develop into a golf course, who would you hire to design the course? Would you go with Tom Doak, Korn Cranshaw, Gil Hance, knowing the immediate publicity and returns on investment that you'd get with their work? Would you go with a younger architect, thinking it might be best for the future of the game, somebody like uh, Keith Rebb and Riley Johns or Kai Golby or Kyle Franz? Or maybe you want to go with an established architect who's never had a chance to work on elite property, somebody like a Bobby Weed or Steve Smyers, who've both been on this show. In any evaluation, you'd have to give Mike DeVries a long, long look. We've seen what he can do when he has great property to work with, or even marginal property to work with. And golf is more interesting and entertaining when forward-thinking artists like him have opportunities. I also liked how he gave Ron Force a little love there. Uh, Ron Force may not want to be known as the most underrated architect, Nobody wants to be underrated. You want to be rated accordingly. But uh, it was nice to hear him throw a little uh, recognition toward Ron. I think that might be a theme I continue on this show. I'll I'll ask each architect who they think is the most underrated person working in the the design business right now, and they can kind of play hot potato and keep paying it forward to the next guy. Mike also mentioned a trip he took to Ireland to study the Lynx courses there last year. I'll use that as a quick segue. I recently sat down with Rod Morey and Adrian Logue from the Ice Seek Golf Podcast. They do a monthly book club and we sat down and together and talked about Tom Coyne's wonderful book A Course Called Ireland. Tom Coyne in 2007 took off for Ireland with the intention of walking around the entire coast of Ireland, yes, the entire almost 1,200-mile coast, playing every Lynx golf course along the way, over 50 in all over the course of four months. It's a fantastic book. If you love golf, if you feel a spiritual connection to golf, and Lynx golf in particular, it's a book you must read. We had a great time discussing it. So go ahead and check that out. Give that a listen at podcast.iseekgolf.com. I'll also provide a link to that in the show notes today. Thank you to Mike DeVries for sharing time with us today. I appreciate it, Mike. You can check out past podcasts, information on upcoming shows and golf course reviews and other writings on FeedTheBall.com. Check me out on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. You can download past shows as well on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast platform that you use. I'd appreciate that. You can also check in and help me out on iTunes by giving me a rating or a review. As usual, I'd like to thank the Sun Dogs for the bumper music. I've got more shows lined up in the near future. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care.